0: It was a whole lot harder uh, than we'd expected it to be. Uh, Naming our children, that is. I don't know, I guess um, I naively just sort of figured it was a matter of picking a name, right? Any name, as long as we liked it, and then just sticking it on the birth certificate and we're done. And those were the final steps, um, though walking toward them was a bit like doing gymnastics. Um, There was the repetition of movement. Declan? No, not Declan. Eustace. (laughs) No, not Eustace. Declan. No, not Declan. There was a certain degree of risk. If we name him that, what will his friends call him? I don't know. What's it rhyme with? (laughs) Whoa. Okay. (laughs) Try again. And then finally, that leap into the air with the hope of sticking that landing. The nurse wants a name. Such a final answer. I mean, why was it so hard? It was so hard, I guess, because, well, names are very important. Uh, Mary Lou and I have this theory, which is entirely unprovable and untestable, but still true, um, (laughs) that names are something that we grow into, you know, kind of like how people over time tend to start to resemble their pets, the same kind of (laughs) theory. Babies don't look like their names at birth. They look they look like babies. They're these little wet, red, wrinkled. Well, you've seen them. Um, creatures who have to be wrapped in several pounds of blankets before they even show up on the scale. They don't look like Daniels or Emilys or Rebeccas or Roberts. They look like babies, which is maybe why parents start out with nicknames, like Mookie or Snookums or Sweet Pea or Sugar Plum or Bubba. Um, <laughs> Names which are both specific and generic, and so perfect for my own unique baby, which happens to look a lot like everybody else's own unique baby. But somehow over time, um, and as all parents know, that time does go awfully fast, our babies suddenly begin to grow into their names. They begin to look like and even behave like Daniels and Emilys and Rebeccas and Roberts. In fact... We one day find ourselves asking how in the world we could ever have considered Eustace or Declan, because he's so clearly a Benjamin. And we parents strengthen and nurture that growth by calling our children by their given names, and that's who our children are. That's whom they become. Naming. It's a very human thing to do. It's a very God thing to do. Genesis tells us that it was God who told Adam to give names to the other creatures in the garden. Now, there's a scene for you. I picture this long line of creatures waiting patiently for their turn before Adam, and they chat nervously and hope that all the good names aren't gone before they get there. And some, the tiger, the gazelle, the giraffe. Well, they walk proudly home to tell their families their new name. Others, the hyena, the warthog, the buzzard. Well, they walk home a little less proudly. Still others. The gnat, the butterfly, the squirrel. Well, they forget what Adam said before they even get home. (laughs) Naming is a very human thing to do, it's a very God thing to do. And that's what our Old Testament reading is about. Uh, Genesis 17 tells a story of God coming to a human being, and it tells a story of God making a promise to that human being, a commitment. And it tells a story of God giving that human being a new name. And here's how it goes once there was a name, a man named Abram, who was married to a woman named Sarai, and they were from the land named Ur, where they lived with abram 's father named Terah as part of his clan. Then Terah decided to leave Ur and go to the land called Canaan, and on the way there, they stopped in a place called Haran and made their way home or made their home there. Then one day God came to Abram and told him to pick up and go to the land that God would show him. God told Abram to leave his land, his home, his family, and head out to parts unknown. And God promised to do great things for Abram. And so Abram and Sarai and their nephew Lot picked up and followed after the word of God. Then one day after many years had passed, God again came to Abram, and this time in a vision. But Abram, who was getting older by then, reminded God that he and Sarai had no children, God had promised to reward Abram's faithfulness, so where were the children? Then God took Abram out into the night and showed him the stars and told him to try to count them. See, Abram, that's how many descendants you're going to have. That's how blessed and rewarded you will be. Well, more time passed, and still no baby for Abram and Sarai. And they got tired of waiting and so they tried to take things into their own hands. And so Abram took Sarai's Egyptian slave, Hagar, as his second wife. And Abram and Hagar had a son and named him Ishmael. And as can be expected, this new development did not make for a peaceful home. More time passed. And by now, Abram was 99 years old. And God appeared to him again, which is the story that's related in Genesis chapter 17 and the first thing that god did was to tell abram god's name the lord said i am god almighty god in good legal fashion initiated this new covenant relationship with abraham with abram by saying abram this is who i am this is what you may call me this is my name i am god almighty so the first step in making this covenant was to name the initiator god almighty Then God introduced some of the terms of the covenant. Now, unlike last week's covenant with Noah, this covenant does make some demands of its human participants. Walk before me and be blameless. God initiated the covenant with a command to both faithfulness and holiness on the part of Abram and his family. Walk before me, trust me, follow the path I set before you, be faithful to me, be blameless, keep my commands, be holy. Then God presented the benefit side of the covenant. The reward that Abram and his family would receive as they kept the covenant. And I will make you exceedingly numerous. See, Abram, I do remember that promise that I made to you all those years ago. And despite your impatience and despite your meddling in my plans for you, I do intend to bless you with more children and grandchildren than you can, than you can count. And Abram fell flat in his face. Now, the narrator doesn't say why. Although our readers' theater did. Was Abram suddenly made aware of the glory of God and so fell on his face in fear? Or was he embarrassed and ashamed because of the lack of trust he'd shown in his relations with Hagar? Was he simply overwhelmed by the generosity of a gracious God? Or was he at age 99 suddenly struck by the prospect of diaper changing and midnight feeding? We don't know. But as the Genesis narrator tells it, God does not even seem to notice that Abram fell on his face. But we notice. We see Abram flatten his face in amazement as God goes on speaking of blessing in the midst of barrenness. For countless years, Abram and Sarah had longed for children, which for them would have been a clear sign of God's blessing. They'd waited and waited, telling each other the story of the starry sky and the promise of God. And they waited, and as they waited, they aged, and the promise started to seem more like a curse, as it only served to remind them of what they did not have. In their impatience and sorrow, they brought Hagar into that brokenness, which served at first to only increase their misery. And then they were old, long past any hope of childbearing. And you have to wonder, did they, had they, as any sensible person would, had they given up hope of ever seeing that promise fulfilled? Well, we don't know. But we do know that God had not forgotten and we know that God came to remind them that even if they had, God had not forgotten the promise. And Abram fell flat in his face. But God just kept on talking, giving more details of the new covenant. And there are four aspects to what God was, prop- what God was proposing. The first was a reiteration of the promise made on that cloudless night. Many years before, you shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. Over and over again, God repeats the promise of a rich and glorious legacy of life beyond anything poor Abram could have imagined. More than the stars and the sky will be your descendants. A second aspect of God's covenant is identified in verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. This covenant is forever, God says. It'll be legally binding for all time. And as you know, I do not forget. A third aspect of the covenant is found in the last part of verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And this is, I think, the heart of the covenant. Not only will your descendants go on forever, not only will this covenant last forever, but the best part is that I will be your God forever. I will watch over you. I will protect you. I will love you forever. And those words... Those words make us want to lie down in the dust with Abram because they're more beautiful than we can bear. The fourth aspect of the covenant with Abram is a bit more peculiar. As we saw, God began by giving Abram the divine name, the name of the initiator of the covenant, God Almighty. Legal custom then as now would have called for the naming of both parties to the covenant. And so we'd expect for God to name Abram as the covenant partner, but God did not do that, at least not precisely. God gave Abram a new name, a covenant name. God changed Abram's name to Abraham. And that name change served itself as proof of the promise, with Abraham usually being translated as the father of a multitude. Now, what's this all about? Why the name change? Well, again, the narrator doesn't say The text simply describes what happened without telling us why, but we can wonder this covenant is a change in the relationship between Abram and God promises that were given are now codified in this covenant. They are made specific and put in legal terms. You will do this Abram. And in return, I will do this says God. And so something has changed and it seems as though God wants to mark that changed relationship by renaming Abram before I came to you. Before I made this promise to you, your name was Abram. But now that I have come to you and have established this covenant with you, you will be called Abraham. The covenant changes everything, including your name. From now on, I will call you Abraham, says the Lord. But the renaming doesn't stop there. After describing some more of the legal details of the new covenant, God goes on to surprise Abraham again in verses 15 and 16. God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And so the covenant blessing includes Sarah, and with it comes another name change. Before this encounter with God, her name was Sarai. After this encounter with God, her name is Sarah. Now, both mean princess. So in her case, the meaning doesn't really seem to change all that much. But what does change is the relationship to God. And that, in turn, changes everything. I think this reading from Genesis tells us an awful lot about our God. Our God is a God who comes to human beings, who approaches us, a God who initiates relationship with us. Our God is a God who promises blessing to every generation of humanity from beginning to end, a God who's willing to make promises that will last forever. Our God is a God who desires our faithfulness, a God who calls on us to follow, a God who invites us to live lives of holiness. And our God is a God whose relationship with human beings changes everything, including our names, because our God is a naming God. This Lenten season, as we do every year, We rightly engage in acts of self-examination. We look into the mirror and we ask ourselves, who are we anyway? The mirror doesn't lie, at least usually, and makes plain every blemish, every scar, every spot that marks us as sinners in need of grace. And so we rightly raise our voices in confession and turn our faces to the one who's promised to name us forgiven. One of the risks, I think, involved in, in paying so much attention to our sin is that we can, be, we can begin to think of ourselves as defined by it alone, that all we are is sinners, broken, damaged, unfaithful. We can become so focused on that sin that we lose sight of God's presence in our lives and in the world and, and the promise unfolding all around us. Our language, I think, reveals how great a risk it is to look only at our sin And the sins of others. Because as our familiarity with that sin grows, our eyes begin to focus only on those sins, pushing any awareness of God into our peripheral vision. When all we see is what is broken, we begin to name things as broken. We see everything and everyone in terms of that brokenness. She is depressed. He is unfaithful. She is divorced. He is homeless. She is wounded. He is schizophrenic. She is a problem. He is a pain. And those names only increase the brokenness because over time, people do begin to grow into those names. They begin to inhabit them. And that's something that we all know, isn't it? We've all been named by others. We've all been seen solely in terms of our brokenness or our failure, our sin, labeled as damaged in some way. And we know how those names hurt us. Sticks and stones really do break bones, and names really can hurt us, especially, especially if we begin to answer to them when called. And our reasonable fear of being named broken causes us to hide ourselves behind these perfect masks We protect ourselves by doing all that we can to keep that brokenness a secret. We do what we can to keep others from ever naming us broken, failure, sinner. But there are limits to what we can do. And even were we to create a permanent shield against such personal vulnerability, the naming would not necessarily stop because we would still have those internalized names Those names we secretly give ourselves, names which identify us solely in terms of our brokenness. I am unworthy. I am no good. I am a failure. I am a loser. I am nothing. I am nobody. I am a sinner. And those too are names that we have all given ourselves at one time or another. But the story of Abraham and Sarah comes to us with a word of blessing, a word of good news, Because the story of Abraham and Sarah tells us that when God enters into our lives, God calls us by our true names. He was no longer Abram, old, hopeless, unfaithful, disappointed. God came to Abram and named him father of a multitude, ancestor of nations, beloved by God, Abraham. And she was no longer Sarai, childless, old, Barren, No, God came to Sarai and named her mother of Isaac, ancestor of royalty, beloved by God, Sarah. The story of Abraham and Sarah tells us that when God enters into our lives, our names change. We're no longer named for and by our brokenness alone. People are no longer named wounded, depressed, unfaithful, Divorced, homeless, no. When God enters into their lives, God gives them their true names. Beloved of God, saved, joyful, faithful, blessed. I am no longer loser, unworthy, failure, no good, nothing, nobody, no, no. When God enters my life, God gives me my true name, precious, graceful, called, chosen, beloved. Just as God came to Abraham and Sarah, so God has come to each of us. God comes to us today, repeating the words of the old promise and making plain that what was promised long ago, long ago, still applies. And that God intends to keep that promise until it finally is fulfilled. And God comes bearing new names for every one of us, new names, true names, names which speak of our true selves and the truth of our relationship to the loving, naming, blessing God. And that tells us exactly who we are. We are no longer sinners. We are saved by grace. We are no longer not a people. We are disciples, followers of Jesus, a royal priesthood, saints in the making known and named by the one who visited our ancestors so long ago and who is with us even now, promising, blessing, naming, and renaming every last one of us. And so it is, and so it shall be, world without end. May God make it so. Amen.